0: Welcome Legionaries to episode 21 of Legion Cast. Today, Brandon and I will be talking about A Thousand Sons by Graham McNeil. Brandon, what have you been up to?
1: Welcome, Legion Brothers, Legion Sisters, and often forgotten, especially by me, folks who thinks Magnus did nothing wrong. Welcome to Legion Cast. Uh, it's great to be here.
0: Well, the the punchline of this book, more or less, folks, is Magnus did nothing right, and we're gonna get into that. But before we do, we're kind of short on hobby news, but we will talk about the Siege of Cithonia book going on pre-order. That's a little exciting for some of us. For some of us, I certainly am. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of that. And a quick goodbye to the Castafurum Dreadnought, the old box dread, you know. Good night, sweet prince. You served me well in high school. Although Brandon made a pretty good point that I never actually ran the standard Dreadnought. I only ever took the Venerable Dreadnought. So, oh well. 40k fans will be a little sad about that for a while, I guess.
1: Yeah, and what I can tell from the article, the Venerable Dreadnought kit is not going away. So if you want to get a Castor Ferrum Dreadnought, you're still going to have access to it. It's just not going to be that old sculpt um, specifically. But, uh, you know, it's... It's something that, I, you know, I think about of the venerable Dreadnought is the regular Dreadnought, just better in every way. It does the exact same thing, but better. So, really not that worried about it.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of other stuff is leaving that <clears throat> that line of models as well. Uh, what was it? Sternguard Veterans. I know this is kind of 40K, more 40K-centric, but a lot of cool old kits are going the way of the Dinosaur, which is a little too bad, but... Oh well,
1: yeah. Uh, Sternguard veterans are getting a glow up, though. The new models look, you know, good if that's what you're into. Uh, are they going
0: to be firstborn or are they going to be Primaris? Do you know?
1: I don't know. They, you know, the same with the the new Indominus armor Terminators. They said that, that either Primaris or firstborn can go in them. Um, I assume they're Primaris. Oh,
0: seems kind of bullshit, but whatever. Um, let's see, what else can we put into our hobby news section? Or do you just want to get into our tabletop uh, hobby section?
1: Uh, we might as well just get into the hobby section. It's a pretty light week on news. We got most of our reveals from uh, Warhammer Fest, and now we're just going to kind of wait until those things start to come out.
0: Well, I'll go ahead and talk about what I've had on my hobby table. I've finally got thanks to my 3D printer, I've got all the pieces I need to finish out my Invictarus Scizorane. And I I did buy two kits so I could have a 10-man squad. I didn't have a good way to do Thunderhammers for them, but I found a pretty kick-ass Thunderhammer file on Colts 3D or whatever and made some hammers that have, like, eagle heads on the back, so they really match the whole uh, Invictarus aesthetic and Uh, They they look really good. They look just like they match, and I'm pretty happy about that. I also built 10 Praetorian Breachers, 20 regular Breachers, and I am currently working on a 20-man assault squad, which has been a lot of fun. It's kept me pretty busy. Brandon, what are you working on?
1: Yeah, I am also working on some Breachers right now. You know, Zone Mortalis is going to be coming out uh, as a refreshed rule set with uh, the Siege of Chthonia. I am looking forward to playing uh, some of those games, and I'm uh, I'm excited, but uh, I'm hoping some Breachers will see the table. Uh, kind, of a, kind of a unit that I never really found a great place for in a full-size game, but... Uh, I'm excited to try them out in zone Mortalis.
0: I am <clears throat> building a 20-man block of Breachers because with the Ultramarine's uh, Rite of War, they are, it's such a infantry-centric Rite of War. It, <clears throat> I've, I've found that it's good to have bigger blocks of infantry when taking that Rite of War, so I can fit in a 20-man block and it lets me take uh, four Meltas, and I put a uh, combi melta on my sergeant along with a power fist, so I've got plenty of anti-vehicle stopping power in that uh, in, in that big block of guys. And having the uh, the heavy rule on your infantry lets you reroll all of your saves against blast and template weapons. So that's kind of interesting to me. Uh, I don't know. Well, I'll see how it pans out on the tabletop, but you know, I, I'm looking forward to running them.
1: Yeah, plus they just look cool. It's a space marine with a big slab of iron on the front Yeah. It it just looks really cool.
0: They're really neat. I kind of screwed up when I put a couple of them together. I didn't get the right arms matched up. So one guy has his bolter like five degrees off of the shield and it looks kind of derpy. And I wasn't paying attention when I put a couple of the helmets on, so... Uh, I don't know I think I've got enough saturation throughout the squad it won't be noticeable but you know that's that guy only shows up when I'm running the 20man block
1: yeah I think we all saw iron within come out on Warhammer plus and we're like man I gotta get some breachers right now
0: that is such a cool scene when they're coming across the courtyard they stop they take their shots they take a step they stop there take their shots oh it's so cool we're gonna have to do a Warhammer plus episode one of these days.
1: Yeah, the uh, Warhammer Plus, Pirate Iron Within, and you've basically watched Warhammer Plus.
0: the The Blood Angels show is really good. Don't.
1: Yeah, you're right. I, I've
0: I've watched that a couple of times now, and I've been happy each time watching it.
1: I'm mostly just giving it uh, a hard time because that's not worth the money. But uh, yeah, we can talk. That's about why it we're in
0: gonna do. Episode. That's why we're gonna do a different episode about
1: it. Yeah. All right. Well, I think, uh, you know, again, short hobby section here, but uh, I think we got a lot to talk about with this book. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it.
0: everyone. Sorry about the short hobby news section, but it's been a bit of a dry week for us. Right now, we're going to be getting into the 12th entry of the Horus Heresy series, and Brandon and I talked about this on the break. This is Graham McNeil's fourth entry into the series, not counting we didn't count any of the short stories. We know he did um, the lightning uh, what was it? The, the lightning, no, not the tower. Anyway, uh, the last church, sorry. I digress. But uh, Graham McNeil has done a full third of the books in the series thus far. And the next runner up is either Dan Abnett or Ben Counter. They've both done two. And I think um, there's a little dispersion between the rest of the books. But uh, anyway, it's, you know, he's seen, uh, Graham McNeil seems to be kind of carrying the team here. He's doing a, lot, a ton of writing for this. I know I think at the time, Abnett was writing uh, some 40K books. I can't remember if that was the Ravenor series or not, or maybe he was still doing Eisenhorn at the time.
1: You know, I I know we give Graham McNeil a hard time. Well, some folks on this podcast give his writing a a very hard time. I would say all of his books, none of them have been a big, fat swing and a miss in this. This Uh, is probably the most difficult read, this one. So Absolutely. for a guy who's written four out of 12 of these, he's done pretty well.
0: Right. So uh, none of us have said that he's a, a terrible writer. He's just, he. for some of us, he tends to be a little inconsistent. Anyway, um, I don't know that I've ever called him a bad writer. Maybe I have, and I just don't remember it, but I don't agree with all the decisions, all the writing that he does. Anyway, um, The first, maybe third of this book is pretty dry. And I remember Brandon and I texting back and forth about kind of that initial slog. But I feel like after this first bit of arc, it certainly takes off in a much stronger direction. But our story starts off on this kind of uh, feral world inhabited by these primitive... Humans that they had kind of a technological digression over uh, over the period of the long night where or old night sorry where humanity was all separated and you know they lost contact with another but the planet Agoru has kind of muddled along more or less throughout the centuries uh, kind of developing this tribal culture and this st- strange superstition and they they worship these. I don't remember what they called them—the the things in the mountain or whatever—but uh, they've got their whole uh, cultural.
1: Yeah, they they have their whole superstition about these ancient, like titan-sized. Well, those uh, are the statues. guardians.
0: Those are just the guardians, but there's something else residing in the mountain, and they've got a superstition that. These things require that they hunger for the dead and they must be appeased. Otherwise they'll wake up and, I don't know, destroy the world or the galaxy or whatever. But uh, the Thousand Suns are on this world. They were drawn to it because their Primarch Magnus, said so, I guess.
1: He's a big Vision Quest guy. Yeah. If you haven't figured that out. Um, There's a bit of this. Um Yeah.
0: Well, the Thousand Suns are here kind of learning and examining and kind of chasing the thread of whatever's going on here because they can. They're all. They're a largely psychic legion and they can tell that something's up here. Well, they're in this arc. They're in this section of space called the Arc Reach Cluster and the Space Wolves are there as well on a uh, compliance campaign. And. Lehman Russ has been the primarch of these space wolves. has been requesting assistance from the thousand suns for what a couple of weeks now to, to come take this capital world somewhere. And the thousand suns have been so sidetracked on the side quest that they're ignoring the space wolves for now. So finally Lehman Russ sends an envoy. And I really like these guys that show up that the part of this first section to me that suffers the most is that Graham McNeil found a way to make the side characters more interesting than the Thousand Suns. The Space Wolves show up for a couple of scenes and they steal the show. So we get this captain, Amlody Scarson Scarsonson, pretty kick-ass name, and a librarian or a rune priest for the Space Wolves called Other Weirdmake. And they're basically sent to strong-arm the Thousand Suns into showing up and answering Mag- or Lehman Russ's call for aid.
1: Yeah, and this is kind of a part that annoys me because it definitely makes uh, the Thousand Suns seems a bit overpowered here because, um, you know, Amlody scarson comes out uh, on a... Uh, kind of with a head full of steam. And he's like, hey, you need to go answer the Wolf King's summons now. And... Magnus is basically like I'm gonna kill you, and uses all this psychic power to like transfix the Wolf Lord and all of this stuff. And I'm like, okay, we get it. He's super powerful. Got it. Okay, we can move on from this. But uh, I I think this is, you know, kind of a great. We we get introduced to the theme of this book really quickly here um and it's and it's on this world here and the theme of this book you know we we talked a little bit in the break and you know you said pride was one of the themes we have flown so far past pride with these guys it is pure arrogance at this point like the 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 emperor's children are a prideful legion these guys and i want to touch on on a conversation that has had on this planet here when they're looking at these stone guardians these captains are sitting there talking about how they could one on one a warlord titan that is a that goes so far beyond pride
0: yeah i would agree um the sheer fucking hubris of the story is is a reoccurring element it's a pretty strong theme but to to go back to how magnus kind of smacks down Amlody Scarson, Scarsonson. If it, if it had been Angron that felt insulted like that, Angron would have just killed Amlodi. But, you know, I, I guess the author felt like he had to put, like, give Magnus a flex here at one point. Uh, I kind of get that. But again, like, no Space Wolf would have talked to Horus like this. They wouldn't have approached Vulcan like this. They wouldn't have approached... Uh, you know, uh, Jagatai Khan like this. But it it immediately showcases the enmity between the Space Wolves and the Thousand Suns. The Thousand Suns in the beginning seem like they're they're willing to listen. But when Scarsonson comes so hot out of the gate, I think the gloves kind of come off very quickly. Anyway, progressing to the Stone Guardians, there are these long, slender, tall war constructs that they're they're these big statues but they look like these big constructs and they're about on scale with a warlord Titan. and the thing that bothers me about this story is that well something that bothers me about the story there's plenty that bothers me about the story is that the most well-educated and they will tell you so legion and all of the imperium does not recognize eldar structures when they find them not only is it, like, a very recognizable architecture, but they, it tends to have, like, a psychic resonance on it or something similar. And, like, it it's just kind of, like, ignored that maybe the Thousand Sons know what these are when it it's very... If you know anything about the Eldar, it's very obvious to the reader.
1: Yeah, it's a bit painful of, like, wow, this is definitely Eldar. And it's not like Eldar are a big secret to the Thousand Sons. These guys pride themselves on amassing all knowledge. So descriptions of Eldar Titans should have been something they had very quick access to. So definitely a hole there.
0: It's, I don't know. It's kind of, they blow past it pretty quickly, but Magnus and the thousand suns and the space wolves are going to go do one last investigation of the anomaly in this mountain. And when they get to these big stone guardians, Magnus starts to undo the seals on this mountain tomb. And the local elder of this human population says, You can't do that. You'll, you'll wake up the sleepers. We need to feed them the dead right now. Otherwise, they'll wake up. And Magnus says, I know better than you, you dumb human. And, you know, starts breaking these seals. But before he gets much farther... All, all hell breaks loose, and these Elder Titans wake up. And there's this big epic battle where the, the Space Wolves are giving it their all. They're throwing everything they have at these Titans. And at one point, Magnus takes a big hit from one of these Titans, and all the Thousand Suns think he's dead. And so they just come unglued. And whatever restraint they had on their... Po- their psychic powers, goes right out the window. And what we see here is this incredibly chaotic scene of unchecked psychic power threatening to destroy everything around them. And Brandon, I, th- I think you mentioned in one of our earlier conversations uh, before we recorded that there's a point in this scene where Araman, our the chief librarian of the Thousand Sons he almost blows up his own head like two or three times. Like, overusing his powers, stressing himself out, he almost loses control.
1: He lo- he almost loses it here. He almost loses it when he's meditating and just, like, trying to scry the future in his own tent, and he has to get saved by Othair Weirdmake. Uh, th- there's several times here where they almost lose control of their powers, and I made this scenario to you, you know we kept joking back and forth that this was the part in uh, in the movie Borat where we say it's like giving a gun to a monkey, but this is like giving a hydrogen bomb to a child. Like the, and, and they re- they think, they are like, we have an absolute handle on this and it is just demonstrated at every turn that they do not have a good control over what they're doing. The only one that seems to have any semblance of control at all, truly, is Magnus.
0: More on that later. It's it's very obvious that they're controlling their powers by a thread. They have the the barest minimum of overall control, and it may seem like they have some great discipline, but... Control, I'm not convinced, because of, of how often they come to the brink. They're, they're dancing right on the line of being, whatever, quote-unquote, safe. I wouldn't call what they do safe, but uh, after the fight, they end up triumphing over the Titans, and after the fight, it comes out that Magnus was shielded by a, another uh, very powerful psychic within the Legion, until after the fight and they're able to recuperate and they delve down into the mountain and what they find here is a an entity of the warp what we would know as a demon has been bound there for you know several thousand years or millennia or so it if it's uh, if it dates back to the Eldar Empire back when they were li- living on planets, it would be several millennia. It'd, it'd go back to um, the war in he- per- pre, no, post war, in- war in heaven, I believe. Anyway,
1: it'd be after the war in heaven. We're not going to get into that though.
0: Well, I thought the war in heaven was fighting the Necrons and the, the uh, I Span think and so. All that. Anyway, it's a very old place with a bad guy in it, and Magnus thinks he has the better of this warp entity, and he straight up tells his legionaries and the Space Wolves. I have mastered this power before. So it already implies early on in the book that Magnus has had some kind of dealing with these warp entities. And he talks to this demon for a while and they exchange names or whatever, but I I don't remember what it's called. It's not important. Anyway, Magnus, it taunts Magnus a little bit and... Magnus eventually or uh, unbinds it or whatever and sends it back to the warp, thinking he destroyed it. And the uh, Agoru arc, the planet is Agoru, is uh, concluded at that point, I believe. And it's pretty much just this foreshadowing of uh, powers beyond comprehension, I think. That was my takeaway. Just it, it really showcases the arrogance of the Thousand Suns. Um, we do get uh, just just before the the delving into the mountain bit. There is some kind of bond building between Other Weirdmake and Araman, And they kind of talk about these that they're different disciplines, how the Thousand Suns believe the pursuit of power is really all that matters. You know, knowledge is power. Know everything is right. It's the only way to survive. Where the Space Wolves psychics or Rune Priests have a very different philosophy. And one of the things they talk about is Other Weirdmake uh, is showing his tattoos to Araman, And Other Weirdmake has all these Fenrisian symbols and tattoos and runes on him and aeromon comments that you don't have any, any any symbols of power you only have like symbols of focus and control and it's a very different ideology between the two because where Araman wants to learn and do everything the space wolves tend to lean more into this is the power i have i need to make the the best use of it more or less so i think Discerning the difference between those ideologies is important in the in the overall story. Because I know, I know there's a big I, there there's some fan tension or not tension. What's I don't know a good way to say it, but there's like oh the space wolves use psychics too. They're just as hypocritical hip, as everyone else. Well, maybe to some extent, but I think they maybe pursue a greater discipline where. A lot of other psychics may may be more seat of the pants when it comes to their, their abilities and powers.
1: It's it's a difference of philosophy that you see between these two, and that's what I think kind of their friendship um, slash camaraderie shows. The Thousand Sons, you know, if we liken this if we liken this psychic power to fire, the Thousand Sons believe that they are the master of fire because they know, or at least they believe they know the source of the fire, how it's made. How to manipulate it. They understand that when you introduce more oxygen, it flares up more. Um, And then when you reduce oxygen, you contain it. Things like that. The space wolves, on the other hand, are like, hey, we have this fire and it can burn you. So it's super useful, but never forget that it can burn you. So I think that's kind of the difference in philosophy that we see from uh, from these two different psychers.
0: Right. So that kind of concludes the Agora arc and the thousand sons and this company of space wolves are able to proceed to their next campaign where the, the Wolf King has been requesting their aid on a planet known as Shrike. And it's inhabited by these combative humans that have refused compliance the Space Wolves, Word Bearers, and Thousand Suns have been tasked to bring them to heel. It's a pretty interesting uh, planetary setting. I think Graham McNeil does a really good job of painting a picture here. He talks about how this planet is all wide open skies and some mountain ranges, and the, the civilization has these big eeries built up on the mountaintops and back in all the nooks and crannies, and they fly around on the back of these giant corvids, so giant ravens, and uh, it's really cool. Now, the the fighting is pretty brutal, and we're introduced to. Well, how do I say it? We we again see how brutal the Thousand Sun psychic power really is, and they they tell themselves that they're a very sophisticated and well-developed Legion, but when it comes down to warfare, they will not shy away from committing straight-up war crimes, which I know doesn't sound like much considering the setting because, like, we've already seen some pretty horrific things, but, like, the Night Lords might skin prisoners alive, but they don't have the power to pull all the oxygen out of somebody's body. They don't have the power to vibrate the, male- the molecules in your skull and pulp your brain. They can't shoot lightning from their fingertips. Just to uh, talk about some of the examples of what goes on here is when one of these, um, some of the enemy units are, it's a pair of, there's a pilot and a rider on the back of one of these giant birds. One is a pilot and one is a gunner. and. They get killed because Magnus crushes their mount un- out from underneath them while they're flying, and these men just fall to their death. Uh, I know that warfare is very brutal and all, but it's not very sportsmanlike when you're doing things like that. So, if a more honorable legion were to see this kind of behavior, they might take offense to it. I don't think the the emperor's children, you know, the perfect warriors would look kindly on you know the sport kind of being ruined like this so to speak
1: well i think this is a good demonstration of where this arrogance comes from for them so the first part of the book we set up these guys are so unbelievably arrogant that you just it it, it's it's astounding um in this second part we see This is why they're so arrogant, because this is just child's play to them. Again, they're melting people's brains and lighting them on fire and jellifying them. They're not even firing, you know, bolters and and things like that. So there's so little threat to them. The other thing I wanted to touch on, too, um, that we didn't really... I I should have mentioned it earlier, but the the Thousand Sons is a very... Very small legion. In fact, I think they might have been the smallest legion based on the numbers that we get in this book. Um, Because it talks about when six fellowships of the Thousand Sons, which fellowship is like their company or chapter element, um, are fully assembled, they have about 11,000. And there's only nine fellowships. So that would put their numbers around like 15 to 20 at most. Whereas the Salamanders and Raven Guard were both considered very small legions, and they were numbering around ninety. So these guys, I mean, there is just not very many of them. And and in this scene, we're going to figure out why.
0: Right. So as this arc progresses, uh, some tensions kind of flare between the Thousand Sons and the Space Wolves again. And what has happened is the Space Wolves have been ordered to destroy a library. They're just going scorched earth on the whole campaign. And the Thousand Suns, uh, Magnus in particular, orders the Thousand Suns to hold the line against the Space Wolves so that they can't destroy all this precious knowledge. And that's that's a little understandable for me. I can see why, um, especially if you're on a campaign to reunite the lost elements of humanity, you wouldn't want to risk destroying any of the lost knowledge or technology that has survived old night. I mean, what if, what if the space wolves had burned this library and there had been an STC in there or, you know, some record of, uh, something very significant to humanity's past. Magnus well, and,
1: has, and Magnus believes in the great crusade. He has is- fully drunk the Kool-Aid. It is made very clear. He is 100% with the Emperor, believes in his vision, actually was the first to understand it because, as he explained, he never lost contact with the Emperor because of his psychic abilities.
0: Magnus talks about how he's always been self-aware since since his conception, since he was brought into existence by the Emperor, and that scene... I I busted a gut laughing at that scene where he's talking about that. He says, "I've always been self aware," but in the previous scene, you see how arrogant he is, and it's just that when the two are right side by side, it really makes me giggle.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it also again it surfaces though. Where does all that arrogance come from? Like, you know, he's all besides the emperor. Magnus has always been the smartest person he knew.
0: Absolutely, and he says that the only. Only person in the galaxy more powerful than I am is the Emperor. Well, tensions start to boil on the uh, on a bridge leading to this library. And it's actually our buddy Amlody Scarson Scarsenson and his company leading the charge. And Ariman and several other high-ranking Thousand Sons are they're basically shield to shield pushing against one another. Uh, you know, one's trying to stop them, one's trying to get through. And before they kind of realize what's happening to bring the Space Wolves to heal, they use their one of the guys in the party uses his psychic ability to pull all the all the oxygen out of the lungs of the Space Wolves. And, you know, it's like if you ever had the wind knocked out of you, you know what I mean? When you can't breathe, it's a pretty terrifying feeling. So the Space Wolves kind of all fall to their knees and Ehriman orders that they stop. They stop using their psychic powers to subdue the space wolves, and everybody stops except Amlodi is still suffocating. And before they know it's happening, something terrible happens in this scene. And it's something that the Thousand Suns believed could never happen again. Back before they were reunited with their Primarch, the Legion suffered from a genetic mutation called the Flesh Change. And it was this spontaneous catastrophic mutation of the body. And it it seems to have well when you when your body's under great stress, your mind can do crazy things. So when one of the thousand stun starts to mutate very rapidly like this, his psychic powers can start to have a very chaotic effect as well. And basically Amylody Scarson son is being killed by one of the Thousand Sons that is now suffering from the flesh change, even though the legion was under the impression this could never happen again. Magnus told them he found a way to fix it, and they would uh, they'd be safe from it for all of eternity. Well, it seems to be a fluke or whatever, but I don't remember the legionary's name. He is now rapidly mutating, and his psychic powers are killing him. Lodi Scarson, Scarsonson, anyway. Aramin and several other captains jump in to try and subdue this guy and save him because they, they think that there's still hope. He can be, you know, the, the change can be re- reversed. But Aramin is quickly kind of put on the back foot because the psychic element to the flesh change can be almost contagious. And Aramin, back before he was reunited with the Primarch, almost succumbed to the flesh change as well. And there's, there's more on that uh, story arc in the book. But... He has to put up his own mental barriers to stop himself from becoming this, you know, violent, mutated spawn thing. And uh, before before they get too far, Magnus does show up on scene and tries to help out, too. But right as he gets on scene, so does Lehman Russ, the Primarch of the Space Wolves. And Lehman Russ just aces this mutant. Like without Without ceremony, you know, without asking his brother Primark, like, do you need help? Rush just takes matters into his own hand and kills this legionary who that's suffering. And there's quite a bit of tension here.
1: I mean, they're about to come to blows. And right. luckily, they, they are actually stopped by the most unlikely of suspects, uh, Lorgar. Lorgar teleports in. And and stops these two from fighting, and kind of dissolves the situation. I actually think that this is a good um, it's a good look at Lorgar um, for once, which we haven't really gotten up to this point. But yeah, we see Lorgar being the demagogue that he's known to be. Uh, he he, I mean, he walks in, he is able to de-escalate this situation so fast from. And really, really, what what makes it impressive is that he mostly talks down Lehman Russ, um, who is not exactly known for his tremendous reasoning or, you know, thought uh, before his thought before action. So um, I actually think it's a, it's a fun little tidbit there, uh, but what's important is that we get to see. We get to see the flesh change happen, and more importantly, the Space Wolves see the flesh change happen.
0: Which Oathor Weirdmake was loosely aware of uh, with his conversations with Araman. Araman talks about the flesh change a little bit, and Oathor Weirdmake says, we too have to watch our brethren for the Mark of the Wolfen. So there's that's a little, a little tidbit that shows up later in the story as well.
1: That's called foreshadowing.
0: Yeah, that's a, a very
1: convenient Chekhov scum. So sometimes foreshadowing is subtle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So, moving on from that arc, uh, that that was a fun arc. I did, I did enjoy seeing all the psychic powers in full swing. You know, there's very little restraint. It's uh, very, very chaotic, and they've. The Thousand Suns talk about this great discipline, but it's it's total anarchy on the battlefield. And oh, one of the other elements about this legion that I think is totally fascinating, and it's one of the reasons that I still want to put Thousand Suns on the tabletop, is because they're such a small legion, like Brandon talked about, they supplement their numbers with these giant, psychically driven automatons uh, that are about, about on par with like a dreadnought. They're not like Titan sized. That's foreshadowing as well, folks. Oh, uh, we should probably just talk about that. Um, the the thousand sons talk about how they were on campaign several decades ago with Legio Estorum, and the entire maniple that was with them was lost in a in a big conflict, and the one of the veteran captains. Just salvages an entire warlord titan and ships it back to Prospero. Now, we've seen the Titan legions up until this point. They're very jealous and guarded with their machinery. So if you just walked off. Yeah,
1: no, this is like this is a big no-no. Yeah, this is you don't just take a warlord titan as a trophy.
0: You don't just take your ally shit. If you're gonna ship it anywhere, you send it back to its legio. But no, um, what? Yeah, the, the head of the, the captain of the pyre, the pyre, the fire, wielding psychics. He just takes it. He's like, this is mine now. <sighs> yeah, it's something they did. They're thieves, anyway. Which I thought that was really funny because there's a reference to a raven of blood later on. And the whole fan theory that the Blood Ravens are a successor chapter of the Thousand Sons, and here we have Thousand Sons just stealing somebody else's ship. Anyway, uh, the arc moves on to a uh, the story arc moves on to a somewhat familiar setting of Olinor.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a brief pit stop at Olinor,
0: which I thought was really fun nice
1: i i enjoyed it and it uh you know it added a bit to the uh the story get a conversation here between mortarian and magnus i mean honestly like it wasn't the most necessary part of the book but i did enjoy it
0: yeah doesn't mortarian just kind of like razz him about being a kooky psyker and you know being a danger to the imperium and his kind are going to go the way of the dinosaur if mortarian gets his way
1: yeah it's basically mortarian being like psycher bad basically mm-hmm. asthma
0: man Asma man no like crazy warp guy we do get to see the at eleanor there's some banter between the thousand sons and the custodes we did to see the custodes again amon turamakian shows up and it uh It talks about how when Magnus was on Agoru, he was able to briefly tap into the Eldar Webway, which is a form of interstellar travel that bypasses the warp. Warp travel is how humanity has navigated the stars for centuries now, and it's very dangerous. But Magnus thinks that he can harness a way to get around it.
1: Well, it doesn't really bypass the warp. It's more like a secure tunnel in the warp. Um, Right. And that's kind of an important detail.
0: When Magnus is on Olinor, he briefly communes with the Emperor and says, hey, I found something that you're going to be interested in. You know, this could be the next step in, in humanity's journey to venture the stars. And the Emperor goes, oh yeah, the Elder Webway? Known about that for decades, kid. And kind of brushes Magnus off. And Magnus is a little hurt by that because, you know, he's always kind of considered himself the Emperor's... I, I don't know, appointed a scholar or something. so to, I, I don't want to say Magnus would consider himself a confidant, but you know, like, why wouldn't the emperor tell the Primarchs about something like the Eldar Webway? Magnus was a little hurt that the emperor didn't share that, but it seems Magnus has an idea. Well, and the
1: emperor also told him, don't look into it anymore.
0: Right. So Magnus kind of gets the, the idea that the emperor is, Retreating back to Terra to work on something just as important or significant as this kind of development. So he's kind of got an idea. He's not really sure what it is. Do they head back to Prospero after that?
1: Nope. After that, we go to a little known planet called Nikea. Right. So, yes. so the immediately- Emperor doesn't head straight back to Terra, he calls a, uh, a conclave at Nikea. And Magnus says that this is to be their Legion's vindication and that massive adoption of, you know, psychic disciplines is going to be the outcome of this. And so they had their way to to go kind of make their case.
0: Right. So Nikea is this volcanic planet that's been recently terraformed to be just hospital enough to hold this conclave. And the... Thousand suns show up and they're greeted by Fulgrim and Sanguinius. Magnus immediately gets the impression that both of the other Primarchs are withholding something. And basically what this is, it's not really a council, it's more of a trial. Specifically a trial for Magnus. Because it's basically calling to account... Uh, anybody that wants to level an accusation against the thousand sons now is your time and so we see immediately other weirdmake is there to call all of the thousand sons bad chaos boys <clears throat> and Ehriman is pretty upset about this cuz he thought they were buddies when it turns out that other weirdmake was just trying to kind of getting the good graces to see what's really going on behind the scenes. And he straight up, he comes out and straight up says, you know, they're all sorcerers and psychopaths and something needs to be done to curtail their power. And we also have Mortarian there, the Primarch of the death guard talking about, you know, all of the, the evil, when he grew up on his home planet of barbarous, there were these, you know, evil psychic sorcerers that were, you know, manipulating the dead. They were torturing people. There were just these evil tyrants, despots, overlords. And it, you know, it's just the the horrendous things that these psychics are capable of are the, the kind of evil that they're capable capable of is so awful that, you know, we have to put a muzzle on it right away. I think there are a few other accusers here. I think they kind of get, you know, Oath Weirdmake and Mertarian are the, the big ones. So everybody else kind of gets overshadowed. And then Magnus has his turn to plead his case. And he gives a pretty, pretty okay speech in the first half. He, in fact, it's a good speech, I'll say that. I don't remember all of it, but it's pretty compelling right out of the gate. I think the nail in the coffin is what, what he does after that, he tells a little story. It's the Allegory of the Cave, if you've ever heard that. I think this was, um, uh, what is it? Uh, the Allegory of the Cave or Plato's Cave or whatever. There are a bunch of people living in a cave and the only source of light they have is a fire. And one of them wanders off and stumbles outside and sees the sun. And when he goes back to tell his buddies, they don't believe him. Or they say, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And... The punchline in the story is, is that this guy eventually finds a way to dig out the cave enough where they can see the sun. And the other people living in the cave panic at it that it's an a- angry god, and they stone the first man to death. It's basically, this the, the moral of the story is the fear of the unknown. And Magnus, this is a very old story. What Magnus does here is probably his dumbest move. He changes the end of the story instead of the other people in the cave panicking and killing their friend they rejoice at this newfound source of light and they live happily ever after For Magnus to assume the emperor would not know the allegory of the cave is insane why would he why would he try to pull it over on the emperor like that? it doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, he kind of explains it later at the end of the book when he literally says, "I thought I knew more than even the emperor did." That's a completely different topic that he's, you know, kind of on at that point. That's when he kind of realizes things. But I actually think I think this entire speech actually digs him into the emperor's final decision here.
0: It yeah, it really it really puts the hubris, the arrogance on full display here for everyone at the trial, including the Emperor.
1: Well, and let's think about who this, who this appeal is to. This is a, an appeal to the Emperor to allow them to continue their work in the psychic field. And what they do... Again, we're, we're talking about the Emperor here who knows all of this stuff already... So as Magnus is giving this speech of like, you know, we've mastered this stuff. We know all there is to know really about the warp. And we can share that, you know, with the rest of humanity and really improve everything. That that really should be just, and I think it is, telling the Emperor, these guys don't know the first thing about the, the warp. I've got to put a cap on this right now.
0: Right. So it really puts the paints the whole perspective that the Thousand Sons are really in over their heads on something they don't understand. And the Emperor knows that better than anyone else. So the verdict of the Council of Nikea is. Oh, there's there's one more instance where the Emperor asks if anyone has anything else to add. And what we see is this really interesting scene of a a White Scar, a Alpha Legionnaire, several other chief librarians from other legions step forward to speak their piece. And we're introduced here to one of my favorite characters from the White Scars, Tagatai Yasugi. He is the chief librarian of the White Scars and he says, he gives this pretty compelling speech that, and I think in the end it also uh, negatively impacts the Emperor's decision because he directly references it. Yasugi talks about how, you know, our psychic powers are like a bolter or a land raider or our power armor. You wouldn't just want to take them away from us before we go into battle. This is a part of who we are and You know, we've only ever used it to serve, you know, the Imperial truth. And comparing this unfathomable mental force to something as crude as a bolter or a land raider, I think tips the Emperor over, really, if he hadn't been already. So when the Emperor gives his ruling, he says, To compare compare this to something so mundane really shows me how little you know. And the Edict of Nikea states that all psychic individuals serving within the legions must return to their standard battle lines and never use their psychic abilities again. The only psychics in the Imperium that will be allowed to continue existing are navigators and astropaths. And I think there's like one or two other things I don't recall now. Basically, nobody gets to use psychic powers anymore except for the guys that get us across space and the guys that allow us to talk to one another across space that's it
1: and And you know he even goes so far to say if you do not listen to this i will f you up
0: yeah he's um he's not shy about it at all he said he says this is a death sentence if you uh, go against my wishes
1: and this is a good time to add that right before the Emperor delivers his verdict, um, Magnus has a vision of the future. Um, and he actually sees Horus being corrupted. And as soon as he comes out of that vision trance, he's like, we got to get back to Prospero. We got to we got to go back right now. And they're like, we, well, I mean, we have to wait for the Emperor to uh, to deliver his verdict. And he's like, I don't even care about that. We have to go now. But uh, obviously they convince him to, you know, you got to talk to the Emperor, which it kind of explains it later, but I I still think it's a bit weak that he doesn't try to even talk to the Emperor right now about what he saw. Because the Emperor knows him better than anybody.
0: Yeah, I think think Magnus tries to commune with him, but the Emperor won't have it. So they more or less have to leave Nikea in a hurry. And our next scene, they're on Prospero, and it becomes very obvious that the Thousand Sons never stop practicing these psychic disciplines or whatever. They're still looking into the future. Magnus is still trying to figure out uh, how to save Horus. And what we see is... Magnus gearing up for this giant ritual that will try to intercept Horus and, you know, have him remain loyal to the Emperor. And we know where that goes because Graham McNeil writes about it in False Gods. When Horus is off having his vision quest, Magnus is there as well. And this is what that is. So Magnus uh, initiates this giant ritual that causes thousands of psychic thralls to die in the process. And he ultimately fails, as we saw in False Gods. When he returns, he says, just as I sought to save Horus, there were others there ready to push him over the edge. And so the the next phase of the plan is to do something similar, but instead of trying to save Horus, it's to forewarn the Emperor. And I know what you're thinking. There's no better way to do that than to send an astropathic message or a ship. But you're both wrong. What we're going to do is sacrifice even more psychic thralls and we're going to hurl Magnus's astral body across space directly to Terra so that Magnus can talk to the Emperor face to face.
1: No way that through can go the wrong. web way.
0: No way that can go wrong, folks. Any guesses where this goes? Oh, it's bad. It's, it's bad. real bad. It's so bad. Magnus admits to being a toddler. What yeah. happens
1: is this is actually one of the coolest scenes in the book.
0: Though. It is so awesome. It's written so well because they catapult Magnus's uh, astral form ...through dimensions and across space and time... ...directly to the Eternity Gate at Terra... ...or the, the Golden Throne Room. And it's written in a way that Magnus is flying through the warp... ...is this glowing red comet... ...and he's shooting past all the denizens of the warp... ...and they're so terrified of this... ...you know, massive psychic force boiling through the warp... ...that they're scattering in every direction... And Magnus talks about how, as he looks over, he sees these vast intelligences greater than anything comprehensible shifting in the warp Is uh, mm-hmm. as, as he travels across space and time. It's, it's written very well. It's so cool. And Magnus gets to Terra and bursts through the psychic wards that protect the, the Imperial Palace from... You know, warp invasion or you know, whatever. The emperor has his his own set of seals and safeguards and all that. And Magnus is so powerful due to all this um, warp fuckery that's going on that he just bursts through it.
1: Well, let's let's be clear. There's a, there's an important part here. When he tries to break into the webway, he actually can't until this giant intelligence from the warp comes and says, "Here." have a little bit of my power and Magnus without thinking for a second goes "thanks" and takes off again. No way that can go badly either. Don't exe- don't accept
0: gifts from strange what is it? Strange individuals residing in the warp handing out powers is no basis for a primarch's authority. But Magnus just he knows better than everybody else. So what does he do? He busts Straight into the imperial palace, and everybody in the palace is in panic mode because they see this giant flaming red fuck off demon standing in the throne room, and the only person there that recognizes it for what it is is the emperor because the emperor has known Magnus from all primarchs has known Magnus the longest because they've always been aware of one another, of and so in an instant, the emperor says, "Magnus." Magnus says, "Father." And they link psychically, and Magnus sees exactly what he's done. He's destroyed all of the barriers protecting Terra from the warp. He has annihilated the Emperor's gateway into the webway. He's severely damaged the infrastructure of the Golden Throne. And he's completely left the interior of the palace open to invasion from the denizens of the warp. In addition to that, Magnus sees the future the Emperor had planned for him. He sees a vision of golden roads spanning across the galaxy from Terra, with Magnus at the epicenter guiding everyone with his brilliant mind. He was going to be the Astronomicon 2.0. And Magnus has just destroyed that. He's annihilated it. There's no hope. And in that instance, he realizes that there is no forgiveness from the emperor for this. He's undone his greatest work.
1: Yeah, he uh, he messed up big time. And the emperor is like, well, now you know what hap- is going to happen. And Magnus is like, sure do. And heads just lets himself be pulled back to, uh, to Prospero. When he comes out of his trance... Aramans, like what happened, and Magnus just takes off on him and goes and hides up in his his temple. And one of his uh, his captains, I believe it's Ammon, um, and the Scarab Occult walk in, and Magnus is like has his thoughts unshielded. It's so not st-
0: it's not Ammon. It's um, somebody else. I can't remember his name.
1: Oh, um, well. This guy walks in, and Magnus has his his thoughts unguarded. So this this guy's a telepath, reads everything. Says we got to prepare because, you know, we're about to get cold, and we got to be able to fight back. And Magnus is like, "No, we're not fighting back at all." He's like, "That's no, that's not okay. I got to prepare everything." So Magnus kills him and the scare of a cult.
0: Yeah, like ten terminators and a veteran captain. And Magnus liquefies all of them. Because Magnus is resigned to his fate. He knows, he's, he knows he's screwed up. He knows that he needs to be punished. He's ready for it. So he doesn't warn anybody. In fact, he disperses the entire fleet to the far corners of the system. And before anyone knows what happens to those ships, all the you know kind of outside system stations and all these ships just go dark. And before long, we see who's here. The Space Wolves have been sent to destroy the Thousand Sons. And right as they show up, uh, Ammon and Aramin start spreading the word that the Space Wolves are here and we need to defend ourselves. And Magnus just keeps saying no. In fact, this whole time Magnus has been shielding their psychic perception from outside the system so like there was no uh there's no scrying the future there's no seeing, there's no um perception of what is coming to kill them until it's too late so the thousand suns are able to put up a psychic shield just long enough that uh, th- they put it up to uh, survive against the worst of the incoming bombardment the Space Wolves waste no time in getting down to business. They start bombarding the planet so thoroughly, the mantle of the planet cracks. And the only place left on the planet worth attacking is the the big city of Tisca, where the Thousand Suns have their, their big base.
1: Yeah, and it's definitely kind of a shame, too, because you know we get some really good, vivid descriptions of Prospero, and it seems like it's actually quite a beautiful planet. Uh, and it is just leveled by the Space Wolves. Um, and and, I mean, they don't, they don't leave an ounce of it standing. And from there we kind of get into writ large, the burning of Prospero, um, as, as we knew it would happen. And I get real death of innocence vibes from all of this. This is also probably the best action scene in the book. Um, just really well done. Um, all the crazy things that the thousand sons are doing because they kind of just throw caution to the wind for the most part and they're like we need the full potential of all of our powers
0: so one of the things that we skipped over is that when magnus is secluded to his uh inner sanctum he has a he reconvenes with the warp entity that he met earlier in the when he was on Agoru, the one that he disbinded or uh Uh, the one that he defeated down in the cave. And it turns out that he's run into this psychic power before, and we get this kind of echo back to when Magnus solved the problem of the flesh change. And he talks about how, why he's only got one eye. And it's implied that the warp entity that gave him the power to stop the flesh change required payment. And it was not a... you know, it wasn't a uh, be-all, end-all solution to the problem. It was uh, a temporary boon. And now the flesh change will happen to them again. And Magnus becomes outraged at this. It's, it's very obvious that Magnus was manipulated from the start by this, this warp entity. And this is, again, where we see he he's back to admitting that he's never known anything he's been dancing to someone else's strings this whole time whether it be the emperors or whatever is residing in the warp you know Magnus has always been there in fact the this warp entity talks about how Magnus was always their chosen instrument and Horus is a cheap second but it turned out that Magnus's loyalty to the loyalty to the emperor was so unshakable that you know they had to go with Horus instead of Magnus because uh, they they could never manipulate Magnus that well, which I I get that that's just um, I'm sure that that's just like ego caressing or uh, this warp thing telling Magnus just what he wants to hear because as we know later on, Magnus becomes a demon Primarch of Zeench, who is the lord of lies. So this warp entity, which we find out in this scene that it's Zeench manipulating Magnus we find out in this scene that it's been the dark gods or Zeech in particular manipulating Magnus and a thousand suns this entire time. So we get to deep into the burning of Prospero where we get the, we briefly get a reason for why the space wolves are wholesale burning everything. And it becomes obvious later or in this interaction between Ehriman and Othar Weirdmake, they they have like a psychic tussle where they kind of exchange information. Othar Weirdmake sees everything from Ehriman's end, Ehriman sees everything from Othar Weirdmake's end. And it was actually the honeyed words of Horus and the, uh, what was it, the angry words of Constantine Valdor, who is the, the chief custodies custodian, urging Lehman Rust to burn everything. So the original orders were to bring Magnus and the Thousand Sons in alive, but the Warmaster Horus, being Warmaster, told Lehman Russ, no, Magnus has betrayed our father, he must die. And if Constantine Valdor, the chief bodyguard of the Emperor, uh, are telling you to kill somebody, Lehman Russ is probably like, you know, it's probably the right thing to do. And we see later on in the the there's another book called The Burning of Prospero about the Space Wolves' uh, point of view on this end. We see that even up until the very end, Lehman Russ was going to give Magnus a chance, and it never uh, coalesces that way. So it comes down to blows. There's this monumental fight scene between Lehman Russ and Magnus. You know, they're both going for broke. It It's very. Um, This is the second Primark duel that um, Graham McNeil's written, and he does both of them very well. He did Ferris, Manus and Fulgrim, and now he's done Lehman Russ and Magnus, which is this epic rivalry. And it comes down to um, Magnus getting punched in the eye, and he drops Lehman Russ, but Lehman Russ is brawler enough to pick up Magnus by his collar and belt and break his back over Lehman Russ's knee. And it is so awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it's absolutely wild. It's a really good, cool fight. Um, and in that time, you know, uh, Araman kills Othar Weirdmake in their little psychic duel, which is kind of a shame. I always kind of liked Othar Weirdmake. Thought he was one of the better characters. But uh, Araman is also a really good character. But Magnus kind of, as he enters the battle, tells Araman hey, when the time when the appointed time comes, you need to focus on this like scarab jewel that everybody has inset into their armor. I'm going to, you know, do some, some spells or whatever. Um, so just trust me. And that time comes and all the thousand suns get transported away. And we find out that they've been transported to the planet of sorcerers. Interestingly enough, it sounds like they've been this planet has been set up basically for them to arrive for you know untold millennia. Um, implying that you know Zeech kind of had this plan set out for you know before any of them were even you know microscopic organisms,
0: right? And there's there's a whole nother character arc in here that we haven't even mentioned because why. There is a group of Remembrancers attached to the Thousand Suns Expeditionary Fleet. And they all have some kind of psychic potential, whether it... Yeah, they all have different gifts. And they don't really... They're For me, they're strictly filler. They add a minimal human element to the story. There is one part right before the Burning of Prospero where the Thousand Suns sacrifice one of them that is supposed to be clairvoyant so that they get forewarned of the attack. It in the end it doesn't make a difference. Uh the remembrancer element to this story is completely negligible for me. It's the driest part of the book. Um I think uh, one of the characters, Lemuel Galman, he's kind of relatable.
1: Um I don't the- I I I still don't
0: care. I still don't care for the arc is the thing.
1: The purpose of Remembrancers, in my opinion, in in these stories, is to have someone that's relatable. Um, You know, you need, as a reader, you need someone who is also human, you know, to an extent, to to kind of relate to and see things through their eyes. Because when you're seeing things always through like the eyes of a Primarch, you know, they just view reality differently than someone like you or I can. We're not ten feet tall and immortal. the The thing is that they're kind of unnecessary here because the Thousand Sons are so fallible themselves. Like they're they're honestly they're one of the most human of the legions, despite the fact that they can hurl lightning and set things on fire with their their mind.
0: Yeah, i I don't feel like the Remembrancers are a good fit in this one. I think that. Uh, Prospero Burns does a much better job of it because you're not getting... I don't think you get an Astartes perspective at all in that book. It is purely from the perspective of Casper Hauser. They're, he's the, the Space Wolf Scald in that story. I can't wait to talk about that one. That's a really good book. Anyway, I think it's handled much better. I think that... Um, the remembrancers like Euphrates Kela and Ignatius um, Carcasi are much better in Horus Rising. They, it's just a, a much better perspective throughout the whole book. I, I just don't think the ones in this story just don't do anything for me. Is the issue?
1: Yeah, um, I can't say that they really did that much for me either. So I'm kind of with you there. Um, anyway, so that's uh, that's kind of the book. You know, we glazed over a lot. Um, the You know, the action is really good, like we said. Uh, a lot of the Thousand Suns, they kind of succumb to the flesh change. And throughout the battle, they kind of realize, hey, we might actually be the monsters that they say we are. And some of them are like, yeah, absolutely we are.
0: We didn't talk about the, uh, the Titan. We oh, yeah. We mentioned it early on. Um, the, the Thousand Suns basically... They kind of repair the Titan to a functional state using uh, psychically conductive wiring or conduit or whatever.
1: And the. It's the crystals that they use to psychically control the automata. Right. Just a lot of them.
0: So they rebuild this Titan to have a psychic princeps in it. So the, the captain, the, the Pyre, is piloting this Titan throughout the city of Tisca, annihilating. Uh, Space wolves left and right, and it's a really cool scene because giant psychic titan. But one of the elements we didn't talk about in this book was the what they call the tutelaries.
1: Yeah, kind of their familiars.
0: Yeah, they're demons. They're,
1: they're definitely demons. They're, they're absolutely warp demons. entities.
0: And what uh, what ends up happening is that during this this final siege of uh, of the city, is a lot of them, a lot of the. Thousand Suns start to get overwhelmed by their psychic familiars and they succumb to the flesh change. Another interesting mention in the book is when Magnus is looking at the Fenrisian wolves that are accompanying the Space Wolves. And he talks about the genetic legacy of uh, Fenris, the Space Wolves' homeworld. And he's like, all the genetic markers are there, you just have to know how to look for them because... Magnus is using his psychic vision or whatever to look at these space wolves, and I got the impression, and they, this gets touched on in Prospero Burns, is that the wolves of Fenris are actually the genetic descendants of some of the early settlers of Fenris, which is really cool because one of the um, one of the overlapping themes when in this book when they're talking about the space wolves and in Prospero Burns, there's this little saying that's there are no wolves on Fenris and the punchline of it is, is that there were no wolves on Fenris until we got here. So it's, uh, it, it's a little interesting. And I think Dan Abnett and Graham McNeil were like really in concert with the writing of those, these two books. So a thousand sons and Prospero Burns, because they're, when we get to Prospero Burns, we'll, we'll really see how, uh, interconnected the two stories are. So I think it's really, it definitely
1: seems like they are.
0: Yeah. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll all come together when we get there. So, um, overall I like two thirds of this book. The first part is really dry for me. I like about everything else. What about you? What you, did you have a favorite part?
1: Yeah, the burning of Prospero obviously was my kind of favorite part, as well as the, uh, the Magnus hurling through the warp. You know, there was just some cool tidbits there. Like, uh, like, you know, he got turned around and like he swore or something. And because of that, an entire tribe of barbarians on a planet got hyper aggressive overnight or something. You know, just weird ripples coming through the warp because he's just doing this incredibly unnatural thing. Uh, but then again the action was and in the burning was actually really great.
0: Yeah, that, that definitely stands out for me. I really liked the the Shrike arc, and I like everything on Nikea. We see Nikea like three or four times throughout the stories from different perspectives, and I think the whole theater and the all the events that take place on Nikea are so monumentally yeah they they have such a long term effect throughout the galaxy like for the next millennia it's it is really good storytelling
1: yeah definitely um oh i you know i i will say i know what my favorite part of the of the book is is it's when one of those like uh, the captains is fighting in the uh in the square during the the burning. And he's taking out those Sisters of Silence so that uh, his forces can use their powers. And he realizes that he's undergoing a flesh change. And it's one of those, those uh, familiars, like, you know, possesses him and starts to change him. And he goes, squares up with Valdor. And Valdor's like, you're a monster. And he's like, I know, and drops his weapons and lets Valdor kill him and right. i was, i was like the the yeah. irony there is um it's astounding and it's it's really well done
0: yeah absolutely that's a that's a really good scene or even when um uh there's there one of the um one of the like super powerful i think it was one of the pyre uh sorcerers is like gearing up to hit Lehman rus with everything he has and he's like charging up this big psychic supernova and he chucks it at Lehman Russ and Lehman Russ just stands there and tanks it. And it, it just reflects right off of Lehman Russ's armor right back into this psychic and annihilates him. Mm -hmm. And the, the poetic justice there was really good, you know, tasted a taste of his own psychic medicine and Lehman Russ was just totally unfazed.
1: Yeah. So overall impressions, um, this So this book, uh, you know this. Um, the first time I tried to read The Horror's Heresy, this book is where I gave up. Uh, and I'm really glad that I stuck through it for the podcast because you said the, ba- the, the first third is dry for you. For me, it's the first two thirds. Uh, it really doesn't pick up until the burning for me. Uh, well, not, really, it doesn't pick up until... The, the ritual to send Magnus to, to Terra. But um, there's a lot of filler. I, I don't really like that. Um, I don't know if these remembrancers are going to come back up again in later stories. I hope that they do because we spent so much time with them that if they don't, I would just look back at this as completely wasted time. So um, I don't remember if they ever do or not. Say uh, say that again. If if these remembrancers come back up again,
0: um, they're yeah, well, no, not no. to my knowledge. I made it to, uh, uh I made it to Talon, which is like six books away from the end, and they never show back up. So yeah. I know the they get off planet on a uh, on like a civilian ship. They're trying to leave the planet before all this goes down, and the ship that they escape on is mentioned in Prospero Burns. By Hauser, Hauser talks about how the ship is captured, and it was carrying a remembrancer who was known as the Scribe of Magnus. And Hauser would have loved to talk to the guy to listen to his stories, but uh, I don't know that beyond that they're ever mentioned again.
1: So, yeah. so if that's that's unfortunate. Uh,
0: our next book is going to be Nemesis by, jeez, that James Swallow, yeah. Uh, which is a book I think Maniple's is going to come on for that
1: one. That's going to be you and Manipole.
0: No, please don't. You're not going to be here? S-
1: you set the guest list.
0: Are you going to be here?
1: No, I'm not going to be here. I'm going to be... I am going to be on a ta- on an Italian beach somewhere.
0: Okay. It'll be fine, I guess. All right. Well, have fun on your vacation. Our next book is Nemesis. Are you still going to read the book? Or are you going to...
1: Yeah, I'm going to read the book.
0: Folks, I hope you enjoyed our chat about A Thousand Sons. I I think overall I enjoyed the book. It's, it's good. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's like a... S- says six or seven out of ten for me maybe yeah it's kind of it's just above middle of the road not near as good as mechanicum much better than battle for the abyss i think um battle for the abyss and this one are probably the driest
1: yeah but this the difference is this one actually has impact on the narrative writ large
0: oh yeah absolutely it's it's uh overall not filler all right folks go ahead and shoot oh sh- yeah All right, folks, go ahead and shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. Don't forget to like and subscribe the podcast. Leave us a rating and share this out to your hobby community. We definitely want to grow the Legion, a member at a time. And look us up on Twitter at LegionCast18 or LegionCast, a Horse Heresy podcast. And again, I'm Warwick. Thanks for
1: hanging out. Yep. Thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in Fortune.